1: God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth after 150 days exactly five months from the time the flood began the boat came to rest on the mountains of ararat two and a half months later as the waters continued to go down other mountain peaks became visible
0: the book of genesis chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 new living translation
1: noah was now 601 years old on the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the flood waters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Leave the boat all of you, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth.
0: The book of Genesis, chapter 8, verses 13 through 17, New Living Translation.
1: And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise.
0: Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, New Living Translation Hi, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth, I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., I understand that today we're still thinking about the story of Noah and the Flood. Last time, we spent time discussing the nature of the questions that are involved when people talk about whether the Flood was a literal, historic event or just an allegorical tale designed to teach morality and ethics. In that episode, you pointed out that the Bible treats the flood story as literal history. You also mentioned that in a future episode, you wanted to discuss some of the lines of scientific evidence that support that position. So I guess the future has arrived, and today we want to talk about some of that evidence.
2: And I do want to do that. But as we've been doing, I'd like to start our discussion today by listening to another in the Life Lessons with the Laugh series that focuses on Noah's story. We've subtitled this lesson Stability in Rough Seas for reasons that I think will become obvious.
0: Well, in this day and age, we can all use some help and encouragement with how to deal with the storms of life. Let's get going with more of R.D. and Jerry talking about the story of Noah, or whatever you call him, in this life lesson with a laugh.
2: Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books. Here today on the open water open to... Open water? Dude, we're in a rowboat. In a pond.
3: And the pond is between a shopping mall and an apartment complex.
2: As I was saying before my geographically enamored, engaged, engrossed, and enthralled companion here, uh... Jerry.
3: Still Jerry. Always Jerry. Not Jerome
2: or Your Majesty or. Okay, uh, s- still always Your Majesty? Let's not let minor mundane minutiae about marine morphology muddle our main mission to meditate more methodically on the maritime marvel. Me, 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 me. My goodness, how does he say all that? On the maritime marvel that was the Ark that Norman built. I think you mean Noah. That's what he went by for the history books. Not sure what the guys at the big box boat building and bungalow betterment store might have called him.
0: Hey, do we have any more Ark pitch in the back? Not sure. How much you need? Old guy up here wants 6,400 camels worth.
2: I mean, the Ark had to be truly remarkable if it was going to withstand a storm that made Hurricane Camille look like a whacked out sprinkler system.
3: Spikes, pikes, and yikes. Never thought about that guess a monstrously marauding monsoon of megalithic magnitude might be a boat builder's worst nightmare. Literally.
2: I couldn't have said it better, always stilled your majesty. Well, maybe a little better. Literally. But that's not what's important. Right now, what's important is to recognize the naval architecture challenge that faced Norway. Noah. And he sort of
3: had a big head start on designing the ark, didn't he? After all the Bible did say that the Lord told him how long, how high, and how wide the ark should
2: be. Absolutely, my dimensionally discriminating deckmate. The Lord told Noah to make the ark somewhere around 600 feet long by 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. In other words, the Lord answered that very important question, how deep is your ark? How deep is your
3: ark? How deep
2: Help. Although actually, the Lord gave Noah the dimension in cubits, not in feet. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits deep. A cubit?
3: Wasn't there some disagreement on how long a cubit was? Wouldn't it have been easier for the Lord to just use the metric system?
2: Uh, not sure, Jerobit. I'm not an expert on mid-third millennial B.C. design parameters, material takeoff systems, or computer-aided design functionality. But, since a qubit was generally considered to be the length of a man's forearm, it did vary a bit from culture to culture.
3: Hmm. Well, the ratios would have been the same in any case. But it seems like the hardware stores would have used short-armed people to measure lumber for sale.
2: Uh, let's leave the link between the anatomical, nautical, structural, and mechanical alone for a moment, your bit and reposition our rudder to the original course. After all, as the old saying goes, a floppy rudder endangers a distressed dinghy. Hey, I'm not the one with the floppy rudder. All right, where is it you want to go? Same place the Lord was headed when he gave Noah the ark dimensions, stability in rough seas. The Lord wanted to be sure that the ark would be stable when the winds were lashing and the waves were crashing. Well, the
3: Lord does know a thing or two about staying upright on the water, doesn't he? I mean, who else just
2: walks across it without losing his footy? Exactamundo, Wasserman. It turns out that the ark dimensions the Lord gave Noah are very similar to those used to build modern, ocean-going vessels, because they produce a design which is extremely stable in rough seas. Scale-sized models built with the ark's biblical dimensions have been tested at world-class ship design facilities and have been shown that they can withstand waves as high as a 100 feet.
3: Hmm, never thought about that. Wish someone had built this rowboat like
2: that. You almost tipped it over when you got in. I told you not to eat that fourth donut this morning. And there you go again, Gerblaze. Sometimes you have more insights than a millipede has legs. Again, a critter I wish they'd left off the ark. Whatever, Gerbug. But you see the main point, right? Even before the rains began, the Lord was making sure the ark would make it through some rough seas. He still does that for us today. True dat, if
3: you pay attention to his word.
2: True dat. The Lord knows the seas of life can swamp us if we don't build our lives according to his blueprint. Hey, are we moving? You're not even rowing. True dat.
3: But the kid who rented us the boat kept a rope tied on the back. You mean the stern. You mean the stern. I mean the back, because I told him to reel us back in after five minutes, so I can get me some salted caramel frozen yogurt from the stall next to the boat rental place. Yes, yes. Keep pulling us in there, Skippy.
2: Ah, Jergert, your sense for exotic ice creamic indulgences is inexorably indisputable. The Lord knows the way to keep
3: the storm at bay, so let him have his say. Pray and obey, at work or at play, and he won't delay to help you be
2: okay. Again, Jurgert, you have done a fine job of selecting tasty toppings from that big ice cream bar of biblical wisdom. The secret is to make sure
3: you look over the whole selection first so you don't miss the good stuff down at the end.
2: Well, that's it from Jeremy. Uh, still Jerry. NeRD, and the whole Crystal Sea Open Water crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out CrystalSeaBooks.com where. We're not famous, but our boss is.
0: Okay. I think I counted six or seven different names you used for Jerry in that exchange. I'm kind of amazed at how much information you two actually manage to exchange while you keep playing ping pong with something as simple as Jerry's name.
2: Well, the challenge is keeping up with Jerry's ability to return serve. He doesn't really let me get away with much.
0: So I've noticed. But in between the Jermajesties and the Jerbits, I noticed that you added something to the stack of evidence in favor of the authenticity of the biblical description of the Ark. In the last life lesson, We heard that you pointed out that the Ark had the size to carry a vast cargo of animals and their food. In this humor piece, you pointed out that the Ark's dimensions are described in the Bible provide a design that is very stable in rough seas. Insofar as the Ark is concerned, you've now shown that the Ark's size and stability are consistent with what we know about the real world. Is that one of the points you wanted to make?
2: Yep. And in the humor piece we're planning for next time, we're going to talk about the ark's strength. So the life lessons are helping people have a great start in thinking about what kind of a vessel would really have been necessary to survive a flood of biblical proportions. What kind of vessel would have the necessary size, stability, and strength? But today I want to start talking about the evidence that demonstrates that the flood actually occurred in the first place. In general, I think there are four lines of evidence that can be cited to demonstrate that the Genesis account is an accurate record of a true historical event. One of the first lines of evidence is the fossil evidence. Fossil evidence demonstrates that some of the highest geological structures on Earth were at some point underwater. The fossil evidence also demonstrates that in many places around the globe, huge numbers of animals were, at one point, buried very suddenly and in groups that contain mixtures of both land and marine animals. Second line of evidence that demonstrates that a worldwide flood occurred is that there are vast stretches of the planet covered by layers of sedimentary rocks. In other words, if there are huge stretches of the planet covered by layers of these sedimentary rocks, it indicates that at one point, those parts of the planet were covered by water. A third line of evidence that can be given to support the historicity of the Genesis flood account is that there are flood stories found in cultures all over the world. Some observers actually count almost 200 such flood story variants, and they're found on all continents, and and, and even though the stories vary from locale to locale, they all have one element in common, which is that in one portion in the past, there was a worldwide flood that destroyed some or most of the life on the earth. And interestingly enough, a fourth line of evidence that can be given for the biblical flood account is that the biodiversity found all over the world today is consistent with the biblical account of how various kinds of animals were preserved from death by Noah. Now, when we use the word kinds, that is not a word that's intended to equate with what are called species today. The biblical kinds is a different category of animals, and the Bible says that Noah brought two of every kind in the ark. One of the criticisms that's commonly leveled against the biblical flood story is how in the world could Noah have brought two of every species from all around the world into the ark? But that's not, in fact, what the biblical story is talking about. It's talking about kinds rather than individual species as we know them today.
0: So, today, you'd like to begin with a discussion of some of the specific lines of evidence. I think you'd like particularly to touch on some of the paleontological and geological evidence, right?
2: I would, yep.
0: Where do you want to begin?
2: Well, I'd like to begin by reminding listeners of something that we covered in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. By their very nature, past events, especially those of the distant past, like the flood of Noah cannot be repeated. They were singular, one-time events, and as I said last time, some of the events that occurred in the past, like a worldwide flood, we don't want to have repeated. So, in order to make an intelligent assessment about whether such a flood ever took place, or at least is highly likely to have occurred, we have to look at the evidence that is available on the Earth today. In other words, we're judging the likelihood that an historical event occurred in the past by the evidence that we can see today. So when you're looking for evidence about what happened on the Earth's surface in the past, you're typically going to start with geology and paleontology. To begin with today, I'd like to take a brief look at some examples of fossil evidence that are often offered to support the biblical flood record. And the examples that I'm going to use in our discussion today come from an article which is available on the internet from BibleInfo.com, and it's an article authored by Harold Coffin, and the title of the article is, Is There Evidence That the Flood Was Global? I think it's a really good article. It's not particularly long, but it offers some very compelling evidence for why the biblical flood account in Genesis is supported by the fossil evidence that we see around the world today. And one of the first things that Mr. Coffin cites from the fossil evidence is that in several of the continents, including in North America, there are massive graveyards of thousands or even millions of animals. Fish, dinosaurs, and mammals, these massive graveyards are found all over the world. And so it's kind of hard to understand how a graveyard that would contain the fossils of both marine and land animals would be found together if, in fact, those animals, all of them, hadn't been buried at the same time. For instance, in part of North America, from Utah, Colorado, North, to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Canada, thousands of dinosaurs are found in certain beds, such as the Morrison Formation. These sites, along with others around the world, reveal that a great quantity of animals were buried together very, very rapidly. That rapid burial preserved the skeletons, the fossilized remains of those animals, and so we can tell from the position of some of the mammals in those beds that their death likely occurred by drowning. The geological processes that are present in today's world really can't account for such rapid burial that would have preserved such huge quantities of excellent fossilized remains. So the easiest explanation for how these large fossil beds could have occurred Is a worldwide catastrophe that involved water and that would be exactly the kind of phenomenon that is described in genesis of the worldwide flood
0: so part of the thinking is that such huge fossil beds wouldn't be present unless all the animals hadn't been buried suddenly and simultaneously and that would mean them all having been covered suddenly by a huge volume of mud and silt And the easiest explanation for how that could happen is being caught unexpectedly in a catastrophic flood. I mean, if the water had risen gradually, or the flood hadn't been so extensive, the animals would have gotten away.
2: Exactly. And it's important to note that this kind of fossil evidence, where large numbers of animals, both marine and land animals, were buried together, isn't limited to North America. For instance, in Brazil, there is a very large plateau where fish fossils are found, and some of those fossils even have the skin, muscles, and organs that have all been preserved. The fish look like they had just been caught, but they are petrified and as hard as stone. And these fish fossils are abundant, and they're distributed over several thousand square miles. Now, the plateau where these fossils are located is well above sea level, and it's also a good 500 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this is remarkable because experiments with, if you want to call them that, fresh dead fish have shown that a dead fish in water will disintegrate and their skeletons will fall apart in less than a week. So, for the fish skeletons and, and including their skin and organs to have been preserved so exquisitely, they would have had to been buried very, very quickly, and they would have had to been buried basically all at the same time, so only truly catastrophic conditions would have enabled such an extensive collection of animals and plants to be so exquisitely preserved. Another example of fossil evidence that helps demonstrate that the world was at one point covered in water comes from fossil mixtures that include amber, which is petrified pitch from trees. Now, it's easy to understand how insects could be caught in sticky pitch, and it's even easy to understand how wind could blow pieces of leaves or even flowers into the pitch that would be captured and contained in the amber, which would be discovered today. But how in the world could sea animals, such as coral, be included or captured by the pitch? One explanation would be that waves or strong currents, such as from a raging sea that would have occurred when a worldwide flood is going on, that those raging waves or strong currents would have broken up and carried bits of coral along to the place where those bits of coral were finally stuck to the pitch. And of course, once the coral was finally stuck to the pitch, and that pitch became harder petrified, it would mean that the forests where such amber is found would at one point have been underwater.
0: The point is, then, that there is a lot of fossil evidence that is consistent with a sudden, widespread inundation of truly mammoth proportions. Naturally, we recognize that non-Christians would offer a different explanation other than a worldwide flood. But that just means that there are two competing truth claims on the table, right? And the fact that there are competing explanations means people should investigate the evidence for themselves to decide which explanation is more credible. But you mentioned that in addition to fossils, there is also geological evidence that is consistent with an ancient massive flood.
2: Yes, there absolutely is. But before I move away from the fossil evidence, I want to emphasize the examples we're mentioning today are only that. They're just a few examples of all the ones that could be cited. There are lots of others. For instance, most of the rock layers in the walls of the Grand Canyon, which are more than a mile above sea level, contain marine fossils and fossils of shellfish are even found in the Himalayas, which are the highest mountains on Earth. This clearly indicates that at one time all of these structures were underwater. In these radio episodes, we only have time to skim the surface, no pun intended, of all the paleontological evidence available that supports the biblical flood accounts. But we hope that listeners who get interested in this subject will be able to go out and do their own research, and there are a lot of books that have been written on this subject, as well as great resources from the Internet.
0: Well, to quote Jerry from The Life Lesson, True Dat. We're really just starting the discussion here in the hope that listeners can take some time to investigate this subject for themselves.
2: True Dat. So let's move on and take a brief look at some of the geological evidence. One of the forms of geological evidence that there was at one point a worldwide flood can be found in sedimentary rocks. Geologists know that there are sedimentary rocks found all over the world, including at levels that are far above current sea levels. Now, as we mentioned briefly earlier, the most common cause for the formation of sedimentary rocks is sediments, essentially earth and mud, being carried along by moving water, that those sediments are deposited when the water slows down or disappears completely. Once they're deposited, the sediments cement themselves together, and this sedimentation process can occur fairly quickly. If the sediment is given the opportunity to dry out, for instance, when the 2011 tsunami struck Japan, sedimentary layers from the tsunami were deposited as much as kilometers inland, and they form layers of up to 20 meters thick. So here you have an example, very recent example, of sediment layers being formed from something that is far less than a worldwide flood event. And of course, if there was a flood event of the kind that's described in Genesis, it would have dwarfed any such inundation as the 2011 tsunami. So just to give one comparison, the sedimentary layers that were formed by the 2011 tsunami in Japan, which are now up to 20 centimeters thick, there are places around the world where there are sedimentary rock formations that are up to 100 meters thick. And some of these very thick sedimentary layers go on for miles. So if a single tsunami layer deposited sediment layers up to 20 centimeters thick, imagine how much water would have been involved to create a sediment layer hundreds of times thicker.
0: So, both the fossil evidence and the geological evidence are both consistent with a flood of biblical proportions.
2: Absolutely. And the geological evidence is not just limited to the presence of massive layers of sedimentary rock all over the world. Geologists will acknowledge that many of the great river valleys all over the world were created by truly epic floods. The first geologist to propose that the river valleys of eastern Washington were caused by such a flood, a Noah-like flood, was a gentleman named J. Harlan Bretz. Now, when J. Harlan Bretz proposed the theory that these river valleys were caused by a massive flood, his opinion was really met with widespread disbelief. He first proposed the idea in the 1920s, but now the acceptance of the truth of Bretz's observations is so widespread that at the age of 97, Bretz was awarded the Geological Society of America's highest honor. Nor is the evidence that ancient floods carved the landscape, creating massive river valleys limited to North America. Those kind of carved river valleys are also found in Europe and in Asia. There are also other geological phenomena that demonstrate that at one or more times in the past, megalithic hydrodynamic forces were acting on the surface of the Earth. For instance, there are huge boulders that are perched on the top of mountains in many parts of the world, and those boulders are distinctly different from their surroundings. It's hard to see how a huge boulder would have been lifted to the top of a mountain unless it was carried there by something that was exercising enormous force on the boulder, such as a massive flood. In other words, there is substantial evidence that at one point, the entire surface of the world was affected by a major hydrological force. Now, we understand that not all observers will agree that there was a worldwide flood. We understand that there are different observers may not agree with that conclusion. But the point is that there is evidence from both paleontology and geology that is consistent with the biblical flood account, and even though all people might not arrive at the same conclusion about what the evidence means, doesn't do away with the evidence.
0: I think that's a point that should be emphasized. Just because there are people who are not persuaded that the fossil or geological evidence demonstrates the certainty of Noah's flood does not do away with the evidence. Disbelief in the occurrence of Noah's flood does not render the account any less likely. Science provides solid support that the earth contains physical remains of one or more past cataclysmic floods. Everyone is free to evaluate the evidence and arrive at their own conclusions. But it is entirely reasonable for Christians to use science as well as scripture in their pursuit of truth. I wish we had more time today, but let's jump to a prayer. For our closing prayer, how about if we pray for the restoration for the worship of the one true God in our nation?
4: Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God Lord of Destiny, God of Holiness, You ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You are blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? What you sovereignly declare will happen. We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God, and not in lesser beings lord you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation we have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion we cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in His holy name. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where We're We're not famous, but our boss is.